we're going to take a break this morning from our regular study in the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Philippian church, specifically in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. So if you would, please open with me to Philippians 1. My wife recently has been reading through a devotion on Philippians, and it sparked some great conversations between us, especially around Philippians chapter 1. So when I had the opportunity to teach Sunday school this morning, that was the first place I went, and it was something that was heavy on my heart to talk about. When we look at the Philippian church, Paul had a special and specific affection for this church. It was the first church that he founded in Europe, and Philippi was a place that God divinely appointed that Paul should go through a vision. We read of this vision in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6. Speaking of Paul and Silas and those who were with him, it says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, following this vision, Paul sailed directly from Troas to Macedonia, and he made his way to the city of Philippi, which was a leading city in Macedonia at the time. He began speaking on the first Sabbath day that they spent there, and and God gave them favor. We're told in Acts 16 that Lydia was the first one to hear, and uh, Acts 16 says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She was the first Philippian convert in response to the vision sending Paul to Philippi. Now, following this event, they encountered in Philippi a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, and she brought much profit to her owners because she was able to to prophesy and to foretell what would happen. And it says that this girl followed Paul and Silas and, and followed them around, saying that these are prophets from God telling you the way of salvation. And she did this for days on end, and she was drawing a crowd of, of people listening to what she had to say. And it's kind of a funny story because it says the Apostle Paul grew annoyed with her over the days, which is just kind of a funny way to put it. And it said that he cast the spirit of divination out of her. So Paul cast the spirit of divination out of the slave girl. And when her owners saw that their chance for profit was lost because she could no longer foretell the future or prophecy, they became enraged at Paul and Silas, had them beaten, and then thrown into a Philippian jail. So this is their, their second experience here in Philippi. Acts 16 continues the account of what happened in the Philippian jail. We read that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and they were singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors of the prison were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved. Now, this was a man who was also listening to what Paul had to say. He was the one that was also listening to their prayers and listening to them sing worship. Paul said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. 
Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we see from this story in Acts 16 that the church of Philippi was born from miraculous events. First, the vision in the middle of the night to Paul with a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. And Paul responds to this vision and, and sails out and heads for Philippi. And Paul immediately gets thrown in jail when he's there. So what a great answer to prayer. What a great answer to a vision. And from there, there's a miraculous conversion that occurs in this jail cell because of God's doing the great earthquake. Paul and Silas released, and they preached the gospel to the Philippian jailer. So this church continued to flourish, as Paul writes in Philippians 1, that they maintained, as verse 5 states, a partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This was a unified church that continued in the gospel for what was likely 10 years between that event in the jail and when this letter to the Philippians was written. Not only did the church remain steadfast in the gospel for what was likely that 10 years, but they also supported Paul as he was sent out to continue bringing the gospel message throughout the Gentile world. The epistle to the Philippians was written in response to Paul receiving a monetary gift of support through Epaphroditus sent from the Philippian church. Chapter 4, verse 14 of the same letters, Paul responds, It was kind for you to share in my trouble. And you, you Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me giving and receiving, except for you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So the Philippian church was a church that was faithful to the gospel. They were also faithful to Paul, and they supported him as he went out on his missionary journeys. They supported him financially. They supported him by praying for him. They supported by sending him encouragement through men like Epaphroditus. This is the church that Paul is writing to here in Philippians. Paul loved this church. He prayed regularly for this church, and he desired their growth in Christian maturity would continue and would flourish more and more. As we look at this letter this morning, our focus is going to be specifically on verse 9, but let's read the first 11 verses together for context. So Philippians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. Here in Philippians 1, as Paul does in many of his other letters, he first greets the church in verse 1 and 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Then he tells them that he does continue in prayer for them, verses 3 and 4, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. 
And then, very importantly, in verse 9, he tells them what it is specifically that he is praying for them. He prays that their love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. Now, verse 9 starts with a simple phrase, and it is my prayer, which could also be translated, and this I pray. So telling them specifically what it is he's praying. It's a very simple clause, but it's one that's packed full of meaning. Paul's prayer for the church wasn't a passing occasional prayer. It wasn't a prayer that he offered just because he had received a gift and he was thinking about them at that time. As verse 4 shows us, he remembered them always in every prayer of his. This was a church that Paul prayed for very frequently. When we think of Paul, we may think of him as a great missionary in the early church, establishing churches throughout the Gentile world. We may think of him as a chief evangelist to the Gentiles. We may think of him as a great preacher, a great teacher, and a great writer of God's word, as he did pen most of the New Testament. And indeed, Paul was all these things. But at his foundation, Paul was a man in deep communion with God through prayer. He was ever dependent on God. He knew his great need of God, and he knew the great need of the churches that he founded in their infancy as they grew. So Paul went before the throne of grace frequently for these churches. Paul's life and ministry was marked by regular and faithful prayer on behalf of the church. We see this type of language throughout the epistles. To the Romans, he writes, For God is my witness, whom I serve by regular and faithful prayer on behalf of the church. Excuse me. I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Without ceasing, he mentions them always. To the Corinthians, I give thanks to my God always for you. To the Ephesians, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. To the Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. To the Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Constant mention in his prayers. To Timothy, I remember you constantly in my prayers, day and night. Paul prayed for Timothy constantly, day and night. To Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Now, Paul was so engaged with prayer for the saints, it's a wonder that he had time to do anything else. Amen. He was a tent maker. He was a leader in the church. He was a preacher, a teacher, an evangelist, frequently getting beaten, being thrown in jail. Yet he always remained steadfast and faithful to pray for the church. Now, as born-again believers, we, together with Paul, are commanded to pray throughout the Scriptures. As Philippians 4 tells us, not to be anxious in anything, but in all things, with thanksgiving, present our request to God. Romans 12 says that we're to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. This was Paul. And now, if you're anything like me, if you measure yourself up against the standard that's pretty daunting and uh, very humbling, for sure, to have a prayer life that might thrive in this manner. As an aside on that point, Robert Murray McShane, who was a minister in the Church of Scotland in the 19th century, was famously quoted as saying, and I quote, if you wish to humble a man, simply ask him about his prayer life, end quote. Amen, right? But for Paul, and as it can be for us, prayer for him was as natural as it was breathing. He was a man who was compelled by God to pray and compelled by God to pray for the church. We read in Scripture that we're to continue to pray, we're to pray without ceasing, And as Jesus said, when we pray, not if we pray, that we're to pray like this. Now, this was certainly true of Paul. And when we first encounter him after his conversion in Acts chapter 9, we read of the Lord speaking to Ananias in a vision. 
the Lord said to Ananias, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is he's praying. Would we expect anything else from Paul at this point? Uh, as a new follower of Christ, Paul didn't need to be told to pray. He immediately went to the Lord in prayer, and that was his MO from then on until uh, the finish of his ministry. This is the same sentiment we find in Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, where we're told to pray, Abba, Father, God our Father. We can pray to God our Father because we have been saved through Christ, and we have a God who has paternal love for us now that we can approach boldly at any time because of Christ's finished work on our behalf. We can boldly approach the throne of grace at any time for any need, for our church, for ourselves, for our friends, for our family, because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. He is our Abba, Father, and Paul knew this well. We belong to him as beloved children, and therefore we can come to him always and without fear. And Paul indeed did do this. God has placed in us a passion for prayer, a passion for his church, and uh, indeed we are desperate for him, and we should uh, come before the throne always in prayer for ourselves and for the church. We see this most vividly in Paul's life and ministry. We can see clearly that Paul was a man of prayer and a man who prayed frequently on behalf of the church. But it's important that we also notice the content of what he prayed for the church. What was the content of his prayers for the church? The second half of Philippians verse 9 tells us that Paul prayed that their love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. Now, we'll unpack the meaning of this love here in a moment, but before we do that, I want to show you that any cursory looking at the teaching or preaching or prayer life of Paul will show you that he was a man engaged in prayer always for the spiritual growth and maturity of the church. This was Paul's number one concern. He wasn't so concerned with the the numeric growth of the church. He wasn't so concerned with their physical comfort that things would be well with them. He was concerned that they would grow up into maturity, into Christ. Some examples of his teaching to this end, we see in Galatians 4. He says, My little children, Furu, I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. When he says Christ is formed in you, he means their maturity, their growth in Christ's likeness. Now, this isn't something, uh, anguish of childbirth, that I can relate to directly, obviously, but for the moms out there, can I have an amen that this is a, a deep and sincere desire? He had anguish of childbirth, pains, desiring that the church would grow up into maturity. We see the same thing in Ephesians 4, a desire for maturity. Paul says the church has been given evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, that they were given by God to minister to the church until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In verse 15 of chapter 4, he continues that we are to grow up in every way into him who is our head, into Christ. His desire was for the growth of the church, for it to grow in maturity, to grow in Christ-likeness. That's Paul's desire in his teaching, in his preaching, and in his prayer. Paul frequently wrote and taught about these things, and his desire for spiritual growth is seen most specifically in his prayers on behalf of the church, as we're looking at this morning. A parallel passage to the Ephesians, he writes, For this reason I pray, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that, and now here's what he prays for them, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious grace, of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. His prayer was for their growth in wisdom, that they may know the hope of their calling. It's a prayer for their growth, for their maturity in Christ's likeness. We say the same thing repeated in Ephesians 3. For this reason, Paul bows his knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He prays for them to be rooted and to be grounded, to be able to comprehend, to have knowledge for their spiritual growth. Now, this is the common note uh, throughout his prayer life for the church. And here in Philippians 1, we see it again, the same thing. A prayer for spiritual growth in the church, that they may grow up into Christ-likeness. Now, here Paul prays first that their love may abound more and more. Again, this is just a very small phrase, but it's one that's so packed full of meaning with much that we can glean from it as a church. Paul speaks frequently of love throughout his epistles. We read of love here in Philippians, also in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the famous chapter on love I'm sure most of you are familiar with. He speaks of love in Ephesians 1, in Colossians, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and many other texts throughout the New Testament. Love is in view. He also often links love with faith and hope, as we see in 1 Corinthians 13. So now these three, faith and hope, remain. But the greatest of these, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Verse 7 of that same chapter says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Basically what he's telling us is hope and faith are encapsulated in love. If we love, we bear all things. If we love, we have the faith to believe all things. If we love, we will hope all things. Love leads to faith to believe, and it embodies hope. Of all the Christian virtues espoused throughout the New Testament, the greatest of these virtues is Christian love. Love, um, More so, love is the most essential factor in in our Christian life, in our spirituality. 1 Corinthians 13 shows us that we may have every other thing, but if we have not love, we are nothing. It's worthless. If we speak in the tongues of men or angels, but we have not love, we're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if we have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and we have all that knowledge, but if we have faith so as to remove mountains, but if we have not love, we are nothing. If we give away all that we have, if we deliver up our bodies to be burned, but we have not love, we gain nothing. Love is essential. And this is a very direct statement telling us that love is the most important of the spiritual fruit that we can have in our life. Same is true in Galatians 5 when we have the list of the fruit of the Spirit. The first is love, and then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So love leads the list. It's the most important of those spiritual fruits. Love is the greatest thing, the greatest Christian virtue, and the greatest fruit of the Spirit. Now, as we consider Paul's prayer for the saints in Philippi, 
I want you to notice several characteristics about this love that are in view here. The first characteristic is that this love is a unifying love. It's a unifying love. The love that Paul prays for is a love that is the foundation of true Christian unity within the church. Colossians 3 says, Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So our love for one another is the glue that holds us together as a church. We've been called out of darkness and into light. We've been placed in God's church. We're held in the hand of Christ. We're held together by him. And love is the glue that keeps us assembled as a church, as a body. This is the same love in view in Philippians 2.2 where we read Paul's instruction that if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you see the parallel there? Having the same love and being in full accord. This is unity. It's harmony. It's togetherness. And this is the love that Paul is praying for. The love that Paul desires to abound in this church is a unifying love. So we've got unifying love, and another aspect of this love is that it's a divine and present love. A divine and present love. The fact that Paul prays that this love may abound means that there's already a measure of this love within the Philippian church. He's asking for God for this love, so therefore God is its source. Romans 5.5 tells us that God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have the Holy Spirit within us, therefore the love of God resides in us. And this is the prayer that Paul is desiring would show up more and more, abound more and more. This divine love is ours as we are in Christ. It's there, and Paul's desire is for it in the church to increase. Now also it's a love that may abound more and more, so if it can abound more than more, it means it's not a static love. It's not a one-time thing we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit and we love perfectly the rest of our lives. Amen? Definitely not true. So it's a love that can abound more and more. As God has worked this love into us, we need to work that love out as we minister to the body of Christ. The word for abound here could be translated as overflowing, basically meaning it signifies a continual progress, more than an ordinary measure. How it could be rendered was to abound and abound and abound and abound. This is the kind of love that he's desiring in the church, that it would just keep going to overflowing, that there'd be no end to it. We're never going to reach the point where we're full. It should keep growing until it abounds and spills over. Now, this is something that doesn't just happen within the church. It's something we as a church have to first and foremost pray for and then also work for. We must commit ourselves daily to living in the power of God's love. As he has loved us, let us love one another. Very importantly, this love at its source is not of our own doing. This isn't something we're going to drum up on our own. Remember, its source is in God through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. As 1 John tells us, we love why? Absolutely, because God first loved us, therefore we can love. We can love because he has loved us. It's a divine virtue given to us by God. Now, this is a love that's not the result of emotional attraction. God didn't love us because we were lovable, amen? Very true. This is not sentimentalism. This is a true and sacrificial love. Paul's prayer is that this love would abound more and more in the church and that God would grant it to the church from his own resources. It's God's love to give in and through us. 
1 John 3.14 guarantees that this love is in us if we are in Christ. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Therefore, because we are in Christ, we will love. And the desire here is that our love would abound more and more. Paul's prayer and our prayer for the church would be that this ever-present love, this divine love given to us by God would abound more and more within us. So it's a unifying love. It's a divine love. And next, it's an intentional and a sacrificial love. An intentional and sacrificial love. This gets down to the meat of what Paul is praying here for, for the Philippian church. The word translated as love here in Philippians 1.9 is the word agape, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. This is a love of choice or a love of the will. A Bible dictionary translation of agape renders it affection or goodwill or benevolence or brotherly love, as we just read about. This is a love that's not of impulse of the emotion. It's, that's, it's not the world's love. It's not desiring something and wanting it really bad because we love it like we might love the chargers or love our car or love our home or our families. That's not this kind of love. This is a sacrificial and intentional love of the will. This is a love that chooses with no expectation of reciprocation, just as God shows us in him before the foundation of the world. We love without expectation that someone will give us back in return. We love because we are called to love, sacrificially and intentionally. It's a love that God displayed by so loving the church that he sent his only son to live and to die for us. Again, this is not an emotional or an impulsive love, but it's a love that is determined and chooses to love regardless of the circumstances or how lovable the person or target of our love may be. It's a love that God displayed for us that we were, while we were still sinners, while we still did evil, God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8 says. It's a love that doesn't love only the worthy, but intentionally and sacrificially loves all. This is a love most clearly shown in doing deeds of kindness and humbly serving others. This is a love that doesn't only help those, again, who can repay us. It's a love that gives without desiring to receive. Some examples would be within the church, bringing meals to a shut-in, going to visit someone, visiting the elderly or the lonely within our body. This is a love that encourages and supports the downtrodden within the church and also within our communities. Let's not lose sight of that. This is a love that reaches out to help those who are in need in our church and throughout our communities. We look to see needs, and then we desire to meet them as Christ loved. It's the same love, agape love, that is also in view in 1 Corinthians 13. Agape love is patient and kind. Agape love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. And we'll get to this aspect on the truth in just a moment. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is agape love as defined. Agape love is an action. It's a series of actions. It's what we do and not what we say or what we think we ought to do. It's how we love, how we physically take care of and meet the needs of those who are around us. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second command is to love our neighbors, agape our neighbors, as ourselves. Now in Luke 10, a lawyer asked Jesus specifically about this commandment, about loving his neighbor as himself. 
It says seeking to justify himself, which as a side note, if you're ever encountering Jesus and you seek to justify yourself, that won't end well. That's not a good thing. So the lawyer, seeking to justify himself, question, who is my neighbor? Basically, what's the limits of my responsibility to love? Who am I supposed to love? Is it my family? Is it my next-door neighbor literally? Is it those in my church? Who am I responsible to love? And Jesus replied famously with the story of the Good Samaritan. The bottom line is, we are to love everyone. We're to love our enemies. We're to love those we disagree with. We're to love those who are difficult to love, who are not even friendly toward us. We are called to love them. And that's what Jesus said. Everyone is our neighbor, not just those we prefer or not just those we feel comfortable around. Our brother that we are to love in this way is anyone that we come across who has a need. Now, the church will not survive without this love, and um, Christ tells us again that this is the kind of church that, uh, this is the kind of love that marks us out as Christians, that marks us as God's church. Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love, if you have agape for one another. If we have agape for one another, this is what it means to be Christians. This is what marks us out from the world as different, that we have this kind of sacrificial, selfless love for one another. This is the kind of love that meets the needs for the difficult people, uh, not just those we benefit from loving again. So this is a selfless love that doesn't seek anything in return. And Paul prayed that this type of love, selfless and sacrificial, would abound more and more in the church. May it be so at Pacific Hope as well. Amen? So pushing this thought of sacrificial love just a little bit further, Romans 13.8 says, The one who loves has fulfilled the law. It's a bit of a shocking statement, right? It continues, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall agape your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore it is the fulfilling of the law. That's what Romans 13 tells us. If we love one another, we will fulfill the law in this regard. If we love, like Christ calls us to love, we won't commit adultery. If we love, like Christ calls us to love, we won't lie, we won't cheat, we won't steal. This is what is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. We won't do these things if we are loving in the way that we're called. The same idea is in Galatians 6, 2, where we read to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ to love one another, bear each other's burdens, love as Christ loved. So this choice of love is a key to an effective and a functional and thriving church, this kind of love. And that's why Paul was praying for it for the Philippians. So this love is a unifying love. It's a divine and present love given by God. It's intentional and sacrificial. And it's also a love that is conformed to the truth. Paul's prayers that our love may abound more and more. And he immediately qualifies this type of love, saying that it may abound with knowledge and discernment. So we may love more and more with knowledge and discernment. This means real, full, and advanced knowledge. Love is not an uncontrolled emotion or an unregulated impulse. It's linked with truth, truth from Scripture. The thing that conforms and confines our love is the Word of God and the Scriptures. Love must be controlled by Scripture. It must be controlled at its foundation by truth. Love must be anchored to a conviction that's based on the truth. 
In Ephesians 5, we read immediately what love is, followed just after that by what love is not. Ephesians 5, 2 says, To walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So how are we supposed to love according to Ephesians 5, 2? Like Christ loved, sacrificially, intentionally, willfully, with knowledge. Then in verse 3 of Ephesians 5, we're told what love is not just after that. It says, But sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness, must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So love that is biblically informed, that is biblically knowledgeable, is not covetous. It's not immoral. It's not feelings that are out of control. It's an action, a love that is under control, informed by the scriptures. We read the same thought in 1 Peter, that our love must be under control and under the authority of the scriptures. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So, purifying our souls by obedience to the truth, by knowing what scripture says, we do this for a sincere brotherly love, and then love earnestly from a pure heart. We know that we have to know what Scripture says to know what God requires or expects from us. So we need to know Scripture to be able to love in the way that God calls us to love. Loving from a pure heart, it's love that's conformed to Scripture. This references a sincere love, a fervent love for our brothers. When we know and obey the truth, we will have this type of genuine and honest love for one another. So we're supposed to love to our limits and beyond. Remember our love overflowing, just bubbling over that may abound more and more but as long as it's controlled by the obedience to Scripture. Truth controls and conforms our love. Now, lastly, and closely tied to our love being conformed by the truth, our love is also to be discerning. So first, it's to be a knowledgeable love, and it's also to be a discerning love. Our love is to abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. The word discerning here comes from the Greek word we translate in English as aesthetic. It means to have insight or to have perception, not only by the senses, but also with the intellect. It's wisdom. It's a practical application of the knowledge that we know. It's how we apply the truth we know in our everyday lives. You've heard it said that love is blind. Now, an emotional, worldly love that desires so bad after something that it can't see any wrong that might be associated with that, a worldly love like that might be blind. But a biblical and discerning love is not blind. It's intentional. It has knowledge. It has intellect that discerns what's right from what's wrong. So biblical love is uh, discerning right applications of love at the right time to any we see with a need. It's a love that thinks. So a discerning love is not a love that sends financial support to a TV evangelist that promises blessing in return for sending your money to him. This is not a discerning love. It's not a discerning love to provide for those and sacrifice for those that are unwilling to work for themselves. As we read in 2 Thessalonians, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So a lot of times people may think they could take advantage of Christians knowing that we love, we're marked out from the world by the way we love one another, by the way we agape one another. They may seek to take advantage of that. So biblical love is discerning that knows the difference between a genuine need and someone who's seeking to pray on the flock of God and their generosity and their love. 
So we need to be discerning in our love in order that we're not taken advantage of in our zeal to love others as Christ loved. Biblical discriminating love is controlled by reason. Eagerness and enthusiasm, zeal without knowledge, is cause for ruin. Uh, Romans 10 says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's a zeal not according to knowledge. We want our love and our zeal for God to be controlled by knowledge and carried out in a discerning way as we love those who have needs around us. So a couple of takeaways for us in the last couple of minutes here. Uh, just to draw this all together for a conclusion, we need this kind of love in our church today. The Philippian church was a loving church. We know that. They took care of Paul. They were the only church in Macedonia that supported him as he went out to preach the gospel. They loved Paul. They prayed for him. They sent him financial gifts. They sent him Epaphroditus to encourage him. They loved Paul. And yet Paul here opens his letter to them by praying that their love would abound more and more. He wanted to see more of this to continue growing in the church. So we need this love in our church as well. We need to love and be loved. Christ has unified us, and he's making us the church. We are his bride and his body. He's loved us with an everlasting love, and we need to love each other in the same way. Now, remember, love is a sacrifice, and it requires something of us. It's not an easy thing. It's not something that will just happen on its own. It requires that we are diligent to be purposeful to love each other. Now, people are unpredictable and dangerous, and the uh, higher our comfort level, the chances are the less that we're loving according to what the Bible says we ought. Um, if, we, if we're comfortable, chances are we're not uh, reaching out to those in need. And I can speak firsthand that uh, I've been hurt in the church before, and it happens, but uh, my, my default desire was to back up and to take a step back, and I'll be okay over here. But I read in the Scripture that that's not a biblical love. I need to re-engage. I need to continue loving in the body as Christ loved. Not back off, but jump in farther and not fear being hurt. To look for our reward from God alone and not in uh, the actions that we might receive from others by loving. So uh, one of the values written in our mission statement as a church, we'll talk about this in our membership class if you haven't been through it, but it's, uh, we talk about this to reach up first by worshiping God. We reach in by making sure we're filled with the knowledge of Christ through scriptures, and then we reach out to those in our community by preaching the gospel, but by also loving as Christ called us to love, to meet the needs of those who are in need. So it's one of our values here. We want to see this worked out within our body. So Paul's prayer for the Philippian church was that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. May we, too, pray for the same type of love within our church and with our church at large in this community. May we, too, also walk in agape love toward one another and seek to grow in Christian and Christ-like maturity. So our goal is to grow up into Christ who is our head and to love one another as Christ has loved us. So to close, and as always is the case, the end goal here, Paul states it very clearly in verse 11, to love more and more with knowledge and discernment is for the glory and praise of God. Isn't that the conclusion of all things? Amen.